Okay, we're here with Carl Za and with the um, Silk and Steel podcast. And today we're talking about Tibet. So, Carl, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this topic because, uh, you know, the history of Tibet is rarely talked about in a non-politicized uh, context, especially in the English language media. So I wanted to give it proper treatment from uh, to cover the history of Tibet from prehistory all the way down to the present. So that way it will give people a proper historical context to understand the region and its interaction with uh, other parts of the world. And I would like to start uh, from the beginning. Right. So in the region of Tibet, uh, the, 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 the sign of human habitation, you know, we, we, we know um, their sign of human human habitation uh, from very, very long time ago. And by, uh, you know, 500 B.C., there is an Iron Age civilization in the western part of Tibet. Um, and the, this is where the religion Bong, the native Tibetan religion Bong originated, um, uh, you know, which is a worship of spirits, right? Like spirits residing in uh, trees, rocks, and all the living beings. And this, uh, this ancient Xiangshong uh, civilization was very influential because it's one of the, you know, the urban, one of the earliest civilization on the Tibetan plateau. Um, so, in the according to the the Bang religion te religious text, uh, the origin story is that the world was in the beginning. The world was a giant egg, um, and then the egg shell um, evolved into the snow covered mountains, and the egg white became the ocean, and the egg yolk um, evolved into eighteen. Uh, 18 mid-sized egg and then from the from the 18 eggs came different animals um, so we actually don't know too much about the uh, the civilization because their script has not been decrypted yet um, and you know we all we know is from uh, the ancient Chinese texts that reference it and from archaeological findings Right, but the, the area of Shangshong is centered around Mount Clash and uh, Lake Manasorva. Uh, so in the west, so in what's today's Western Tibet, um, also bordering, also including uh, the Indian controlled region of Ladakh. Right, so uh, the 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 influence of Shangshong, um, it, it's. Uh, you know, some some argue whether it's civilization or empire, uh, but according to the Tibetan Buddhist text, uh, the the Xiangshong Empire, you know, extended its control gradually to to the rest of the Tibet, including the central Tibet around the Lhasa River region, and then um, around around the Fifth, early fifth century, so we're talking about uh, you know around 600. Uh, in the Lhasa Valley, uh, they, there came uh, emerge a great leader by the name of uh, Namri Songtsen, uh, and and Namri Songtsen he is he united the tribes, and he's rebelled against um, 
the Xiangxiong yoke, right? Xiangxiong actually has many vassals, and and one of its vassals ruled the Lhasa Valley. And then the Namri Songchen, uh, he led his own clan to triumph one by one over his uh, rivals, and then he united the the area around Lhasa. And and then you know officially rebel against the Xiangxiong uh, vassal, and then. Eventually declare its own independence. So this becomes the the genesis of the future Tibetan Empire. But then the the leader Namri Songchen was assassinated in 618. Um, so just uh, just just a, a side note. In the 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 the, the people of Namri Songchen, the you know what today we call Tibet. They also have their own um, origin story. So they they believe that um, their ancestor uh, came from the mating uh, between um, came from come, came from a mating between uh, a monkey and a raksa. Um, uh, and raksa is like um, is kind of a uh, a supernatural being in the Hindu mythology, and uh, that was later incorporated into Buddhism, right? So, um, like the the female Raks- Raksa uh, uh, is also known as uh, Rakshasi, and and so so the the the, the Tibetan legend, heavily influenced by Buddhism too, is that you know the the female Rak- Rakshasi mated with a with a male monkey and and their their descendants are the first Tibetans. and and then the the uni- the, the founder of the tibetan empire namri songchen he actually he had a father um this is also another interesting story so he his father married um a beautiful woman from from far away from, you know, he, she's a she's a foreigner and she, um, she, she's very beautiful, but uh, she, but to maintain her beauty, she is uh, she, she has to uh, consume a diet that's shipped all the way from you know her her homeland. It's also always kept under wraps like a secret, um, and and uh, you know like so she. she you know, you, without that food, she, she, you know, she, she, her, her visage will become ugly. And and uh, one day, the the Tibetan emperor, uh, he became curious, and he find out, <laughs> he find out what this magic food is, and he find out it was, uh, it was fried fish. Um, and then he became sick because, uh, you know, the Tibetans at the time they they don't eat fish. They they consider fish, um. Uh, one of the reasons is, uh, you know, the, in Tibet, they the, back then they practice water burial, right? They, they uh, after they burn the body, they they, uh, <clears throat> uh, they throw the remain into the water. So um, the idea is that the fish feed on the human remains; so they're unclean. Uh, anyway, so the idea was that the, the, the Tibetan emperor um, he he became sick after he found out his wife was eating fish to maintain her own beauty and um then then the the um the, you know because the the because the the nobles were af- 
afraid that his sickness might be contagious. So they build, uh, they, they build a, a they boxed him, him in in a, in a palace, basically starved him to death. Um, so that's just a side story. But the real founder of Tibetan Empire will be the son of Namri Songsen. So Namri Songsen is the first leader that uh, united the clans uh, and controlled the Lhasa Valley. But he was assassinated um, relatively young, when 618. So his son was still a teenager um, when he was assassinated. But Songsen Kampo just surprised everyone because he uh, took control of the situation. He put down the rebellion and then he started to uniting, uh, you know, expanding his control to beyond the Lhasa Valley. And he did that very rapidly. He was able to, um, you know, according to the uh, Chinese records, uh, the, the, the Tibetan emperor Songsang Kampo not only uh, controlled the central Tibet, but he actually defeated the very ancient uh, Xiangshong civilization. Uh, right, that that ha had been the overlord of Tibet for a long time, and he annexed because uh, at the time the according to the Tibetan Buddhist text again the the uh, Songsang Kampo married his sister to the king of Xiangshong, uh, but the you know king of Xiangshong had many wives and he kind of neglected the the Tibetan princess and. And so the the sister of Songsang Kampo plotted with her brother to take over the Xiangshong kingdom, and eventually they, you know, the Tibetan army succeeded to subjugate this region. And and now, you know, the, uh, Songsang Kampo controlled all the area, what would be the modern uh, Tibetan autonomous region of China, uh, including part of Ladakh in in uh, what is uh, <clears throat> controlled by India. And and then it's ready to expand outwards. <clears throat> so in the in the uh, Tibetan plateau, um, so for a long time, right, the, the central Tibet, uh, you know, the, the Lhasa Valley and the region surrounded is so far removed from um, the center of Chinese civilization, which is often based in the Yellow River, uh, valley, so there was very little contact between uh, between the two civilizations because there's many mountains and and desert and, and high uh, altitude plateaus stood in the way, uh, and, and it's only in the in the reign of uh, Song Sangkampo's father when the Tibetan Empire was first founded that uh, the Tibetans sent a couple embassy to the Sui dynasty of China. So that's when Tibetan empire first entered into uh, the Chinese historical records. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, Xiangshong is an ancient civilization in Western Tibet. They had all, their own script. Um, but this new Tibetan empire arose out of uh, central Tibet. They didn't have their own, own script. Um, and and, and so they didn't have writing. So a lot of these uh, records of early times are passed down through via oral history, right? And what Song Sang Kampo did is he sent out um, he sent out his advisor to uh, a, a learned man to basically um, make a 
a new script to, to make a uh, so they could write down the Tibetan language. And they based the his advisor based devised a new script based on uh, the Northern Indian script, right? And and uh, that's how you know the first Tibetan writing came into being. Um, and and so Songchan Kampo, in other words, he's very well known and famous because he's really the originator of the Tibetan Empire itself. And and before that, in in the Tibetan plateau, there are various group of uh, nomads and uh, farmers, uh, but they all live in, you know, different clans, different uh, tribes. There was, there was no united uh, entity or, or there wasn't even like a, a united identity for to unite to, to unite all these people, right? For example, even like Xiangxiong, uh, the ancient civilization was considered even, uh, even foreign to people in central Tibet, to, to, to the to the to the to the people in Lhasa Valley, um, but what Song Sangampo did is he brought all these people together in in uh, in the empire he created, and the the name Song um, Sangampo's people call themselves is Bot, right? And the, their um, their kingdom uh, is sometimes is referred to as Tubo, or uh, and Tubo. Is uh, is the name of the empire, but that's how the name Tibet came from. Uh, Tubo then later um, get corrupted into Tibet by the time you get transliterated into English language. Um, so, so Songchang Kampo, you, you can can be seen as kind of progenitor of the Tibetan people. He he to Tibetans is what like uh, Chinggis Khan is to the Mongols, right? Um, yeah, he united the tribes. He united the, the all the people on the on Tibetan plateau, and then he started to expand. So, so at um, before his time, there was um, there was another uh, group of of nomadic people from the from the steppe who expanded into the Tibetan plateau uh, in the area what what is uh, today's uh, Qinghai province of China. So. You know the Tibetan plateau in Chinese sometimes is referred to as Tibetan Qinghai Tibetan plateau. The Qinghai is this area, um, um, or, or it's a, it's really the, the the area around the Qinghai Lake, or in Mongolian it's called Kokonor. This is the largest saltwater lake in China, uh, and there was, there was a lot of pasture land, and the Qinghai area is kind of connected to the greater Eurasian steppe. Uh, you know, so a lot of the nomadic people from Mongolia, from Manchuria, all moved down there. <clears throat> so in the fourth century, um, around fourth century, there was a, a group, no, nomadic a group uh, called Xianbei, from the Muzong Xianbei tribe. They split off and, uh, you know, migrated via Mongolia all the way to this northeastern corner of Tibet in Qinghai, around the Qinghai Lake. They, they founded their own empire there called Tu Yunghun. And, and Tu Yunghun for many, for hundreds of years, uh, you know, interacted with, um, with uh, the Chinese dynasty through wars, diplomacy, and trade. Um, so they had a close relationship with, with, uh, 
the China-based dynasties. And then um, during the during the rise of Tang Dynasty in the early fifth um, century, so we're talking about uh, early six hundreds, the Tang Dynasty um, send a, uh, went to war against Chu Yunhun. They basically um, destroyed the Chu Yunhun power and, and made Chu Yunhun a vassal state. And this greatly weakened Chu Yunhun, which had been a hege- hegemon in northeast Tibet. So uh, Song Chang Kampo, who just founded the Tibetan Empire, took this opportunity. He pushed north and he defeated the weakened Tu Yunhun Empire, incorporated the land um, with his own, and then he sent a, a, a huge army, according to the Chinese record, a 200,000-man army to uh, to the Tang dynasty border uh, and demanding... Uh, Demanding the hand of a Chinese princess in marriage, right? So this, this, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a power move. Um, what Song Chang Kampo is doing is, uh, uh, establishing his own legitimacy by requesting uh, political marriage from the Tang Empire, which is at the time very powerful empire, and also uh, basically the recognition from the Tang. Dynasty that he is a legitimate ruler now on the Tibetan plateau. Now, initially, this request was refused, and then so the war went on, and eventually, you know, the the, the Tang Dynasty ruler Tang Taizong uh, realized that uh, you know there's not there's no point in fighting because in, both sides uh, are are very strong, and it's very unlikely you know one side will overcome the other. So then. The, then Political marriage was agreed upon, and uh, uh, the Tang Emperor didn't want to send his own daughter, so he ordered um, uh, he 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 ordered a, a a daughter from one of his kinsmen. Um, so one of the one of the among one of the Tang uh, royal clan, um, a, a distant relative, and made made her basically granted her the title of princess. So this would become known as Wenchen Gongzhu, or Princess Wenchen. And it was permission to be escorted to Tibet and to marry the Tibetan emperor Song Chang Kampo. Um, and um, now Princess Wenchen is actually a very important figure in Tibet um, because she is credited to uh, for the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. So at this time, by by the time of the Tang Dynasty, Buddhism is already well established in China. And Princess Wenchen just happened to be a devout Buddhist. So when she was to be married off to the far distant land of Tibet, she brought with her a um, lot of the Buddhist sutras. And and then the, um, the you know, she was... She was greeted and escorted all the way from the then Chinese capital, Chang'an, to Lhasa to marry the Tibetan emperor, Song Chang Kampo. So this is a very important uh, early chapter uh, of, you know, kind of the, the China's interaction with Tibet. At this time, <clears throat> the <clears throat> Chinese-based dynasty, the Tang dynasty, and the Tibetan empire, there were equals, right? And, and it was symbolized by the kind of the political marriage. Uh, and and then Song Chang Kampo actually became very friendly 
to the Tang, Tang Dynasty afterwards, um, there was a case where uh, the Tang Dynasty sent an envoy to India. And this was during the, the time of uh, Hersha Empire in India. Um, so, so the Tang Dynasty sent, uh, as customary, sent an emissary to congratulate Emperor Hersha on his uh, ascension. But, you know, it took many, at, at the, back in those days, it took like years to travel from China to India because um, the, it was done through the Silk Road. So, so they would travel from the Chinese cap, ancient Chinese capital, Chang'an, uh, travel, uh, go, go west, um, go through the Hershey Corridor in Gansu province and go through the Taran Basin in what is today's Xinjiang and then <clears throat> out to Afghanistan, down to what today is Pakistan and into northern India. So by the time uh, Hersha has made it to, uh, I mean, not Hersha, by the time the, the Tang emissary uh, has made it, finally made it, uh, his name is Wang Xuanzi, has made it to India. Uh, you know, Hersha <clears throat> already died. The, the, the Hersha emperor already died. And there was some type of power struggle that happened in the, in the Hersha empire. And the, the, the usurper, to the throne, for some reason, turned very hostile to the Tang Dynasty dip, uh, diplomatic mission. And he um, basically arrested everyone and uh, confiscated other uh, gifts. Uh, and then the, the Wang Xuanzi himself escaped. He, he actually fled across the Himalayas into Tibet. And because, you know, at the time, uh, Tibetan Empire was on friendly ter term with Tang Dynasty and Songsang Kampo is just became a son-in-law to the Tang Emperor. So, so he told the situation to the, the, the Tibetan Emperor Songsang Kampo. And Songsang Kampo realized this is also a good opportunity for him to expand his influence into northern India. So he immediately sent out a 3,000 uh, cavalry and then ordered his vassal king of Nepal to supply another 7,000 cavalry. Um, so, you know, total a force of 10,000 riders with Wang Xuanzi as a guide. And they, they cross the Himalayas and they sack the Magda, the capital Magda, and capture the pretender to Hersha's throne. And they actually brought him back with Wang Xuanzi all the way back to the Tang Dynasty capital of Chang'an. Um, and, and the, the statue of the Indian prisoner was carved in stone and, and today, even today stood in front of the Emperor Taizong's tomb in, in Xi, what, what is today Xi'an. Um, uh, uh, interesting side note, this, this, this whole episode was turned, uh, was, um, was written up by the Japanese novelist Yoshiki Tanaka, um, who is also the author of Legend of Galactic Heroes and Heroic Legend of Arslan. So he, he turned this into a fantastic uh, a novel, which has been turned into manga. And, and, but the, 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 so this time, there was a, you know, for the long, longest time, the, the way from China to India had been 
going through like a northwestern route through Tarim Basin, through Central Asia, Afghanistan. <clears throat> but with the founding of Tibetan Empire and the, because of friendly relationship between Tibet and, and, and Tang Dynasty, <clears throat> a new route was established to go through Tibet, you know, across Himalayas to India. And they, we have, um, now we have historical, uh, we have archaeological evidence of this because uh, about 10 years ago, there was a stone tablets uncovered <clears throat> in Tibet, in central Tibet, where it's, you know, written in both Tibetan and, and Chinese language to talk about this uh, mission to India through, through Tibet. Um, so the, the the relationship between you know Tibetan Empire and Tang Dynasty it changed um, after the death of Songsang Kampo. So uh, during the reign of Songsang Kampo, he um, greatly expanded the realm of Tibetan Empire. He also um, adopted Buddhism as a state religion because before, um, as I mentioned, the the, the greatest uh, the, the civilization, Xiangxiong civilization, had the greatest influence in Tibet, and their their state religion is is called Bang, and the Bang religion uh, is kind of like animist religion where they worship spirits uh, residing everything. But now Songsang Kampo kind of wanted to uh, create a, a religion that's different, uh, have a, like a state religion that was kind of. Um, Getting away from the influence of the ancient ancient Xiangxiong civilization, right? Because Xiangxiong was still seen as kind of foreign, and 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 they wanted the Tibetans wanted their own um, their own own religion, and and the you know marriage of Wen Gongju, uh, Princess Wen brought in you know the Buddhist text, and the Sultan Kampo converted to Buddhism, and the whole of Tibet you know converted to Buddhism with him, uh, and Buddhism became the the, the Tibetan Empire state religion, right? They're replacing the, the former Bang religion. And and after the death of Songsang Kampo, uh, you know, the, the relationship between Tang Dynasty and Tibet, uh, the Tubal Empire um, changed because, um, you know, they, they uh, firstly, they fought... Um, Fought for 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 control of the Silk Road. Uh, you know the the Tang Empire sent the expedition into what is today's Qinghai Province, into around the region Hunor or Qinghai Lake. Um, you know the with the aim to subjugate the Tibetan Empire. But this the, the Tang Dynasty suffered a catastrophic defeat. Um, so basically, you know the with that. The Tibetan Empire, they consolidate their hold on the Tibetan Plateau. And then they started to uh, buy for control of the Silk Road, uh, which which skirts around the Tibetan Plateau, like on the edge of it to, to its north. And and then the, the Tang Dynasty and the, the, the Tibetan uh, Empire fought for the control of Taran Basin. So, so in today's Xinjiang region of China. Um, and and the battle, uh, you know, wax and wane. Um, and there was a famous expedition by uh, uh, by a Tang general of Gokorya descent, um, uh, Gao Shen. He actually um, led a force uh, of 
10, 20,000 men into, um, you know, you know, the, 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 the region of, of what is today, you know, Kashmir, Gilgit, Baltistan area, because uh, that, you know, the Ladakh, Gilgit, uh, Baltistan, at the time were, um, you know, they all have their own independent kingdoms, but they were being um, the vassals either to the Tang Dynasty or to Tibetan Empire, depending on which way the wind blows. And then the Tibetan Empire, they took advantage of a weakness in the, the Tang Dynasty. They established control, expanded the control into Ladakh, into uh, Gilgit and Balkistan, um, and, and, and threatening kind of the, the tribute missions from Central Asia to, to Tang Dynasty, to Karen Basin. So the Tang general, Gao Xianzi, actually led uh, 10, 20,000 men uh, <laughs> going through the high mountain passes and, and, and went into Gilgit and Baltistan and expelling the Tibetan army. So this, but then soon afterwards, um, there was the famous uh, Anlu San Rebellion inside China in 755. And then, uh, so all the Tang armies in Central Asia, including Taran Basin, were, were recalled back to the Tang capital of Chang'an to defend the capital from the rebel Anlu San. And that created a power vacuum in Central Asia. And the Tibetan Empire took advantage of that to incorporate basically the entire Taran Basin area. So what is today's Xinjiang uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region into the Tibetan Empire. So at the height of the Tibetan Empire, uh, you know, the Tibetan Empire stretched all the way from Afghanistan to the Bay of Bengal. So because, you know, like they also um, <laughs> exerted influence after their first foray into the Indian subcontinent, uh, you know, the Tibetan cavalry would also cross the Himalayas and, and raid um, a raid into deep into Bengal, right? So, so at one point, um, you know, the Tibetan Empire stretched from basically Indian Ocean all the way to to Afghanistan, uh, and 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 uh, you know, when Tang Dynasty was weakened by Anlu San Rebellion, the Tibetan army actually marched into the Chinese capital of Chang'an. And installed a, a puppet emperor for for a few days, um, so they 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 were a major power at this time, and uh, but this this lasted until um, eight forty. Um, so around the mid ninth century, um, around eight forty, I, I believe there is a. A little bit of climate change uh, event that happened. There was a little ice age onset. So what what happened was, um, you know, before that, you know, Tibetan Empire was very strong on the, in the north in Mongolia. There's a Uyghur Empire, uh, and both the uh, Uyghur Empire, a uh, Khanate, and the Tibetan Empire, they fought for control of um, Taran Basin oasis cities in in what is today's Xinjiang region. And by around 840, uh, there was some kind of climate event where, um, you know, temperature dropped, um, things become colder. And, and ecologically fragile regions like the Mongolian Plateau 
and Tibet, that it, it means disaster because, you know, like blizzard is killing off a lot of livestock. People are starving. What happened was uh, it caused a simultaneous collapse of the two great steppe empire. One in, uh, in Mongolia itself, the Uyghur empire collapsed first. And then in Tibet, uh, soon afterwards, within a year, the Tibetan Empire also collapsed. You know, it collapsed into civil war, rebellion, and uh, there was also, you know, a, a great revolt by the Serbs. Um, so, so the, there was civil war all around, and and the Tibetan Empire just basically fractured, and it was never put back together. One of the uh, one of the um, you know descendant of the last Tibetan emperor, he went to the land of the old Xiangxiong Kingdom in western Tibet. Uh, you know he married into the royal family there, and and with uh, you know all the re Tibetan refugees rushing into the region, he established his own kingdom. Uh, he expanded his control into today's Ladakh, uh, you know northern India, and and he founded his own kingdom of. Uh, and and then when he died, he <clears throat> split up his uh, holdings among his sons. You know, so one of his sons got <clears throat> got the kingdom of Ladakh, and one of his sons got kingdom of Gugu in western Tibet. And but in the rest of the the you know um, Tibet in the central Tibet, uh, it's just it, just civil wars after civil war. It was it was chaos, it was chaotic for hundreds of years until um until arrival of the um, of the mongols so after uh, genghis khan united the mongols um you know the zoom the mongol empire started to expand and by the time of uh, uh of genghis khan's song uh the, the Ugdai Khan, the, the Mongol army started to march into Tibetan plateau. And at this time, um, you know, the Tibetan, uh, you know, a Tibetan Lama, Sakya Pandita, he went to meet the Mongol army uh, on the edge of Tibetan plateau. And he offered to submit to the Mongol rule uh, willingly uh, in return for, for, you know, for Mongol army not occupying Tibet, and so so then the Tibet was uh, later later uh, this happened in 1240, and then later Tibet was officially incorporated by Kublai Khan into the Yuan Empire. So this is the first time like a China-based empire incorporated Tibet into its own territory. This is, this dates to the Yuan Dynasty, and. But towards the end of Yuan Dynasty, the Mongol rule is challenged by rebellion from inside China, and and at this time, uh, you know, the, the, the Tibetan uh, Kagyu school Lama Tai Sutu uh, Changchop, he uses opportunity to overthrow the the Mongol-backed Sakya regime, and he restored Tibetan independence briefly, and. Then the, the 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 succeeding Chinese dynasty, the Ming dynasty, that threw out the Mongols. Uh, the Ming dynasty founder Hong Wu recognized uh, this uh, uh, recognized his uh, 
legitimacy and, and granted him him titles and recognized his successor. So nominally, the you know the Tibet, um, nominally Tibet is still in a vassalage relationship between with Ming Dynasty, but but in name only because really there was no control whatsoever of Ming Dynasty in Tibet. It's just uh, it's just a, a more formality that the Ming Emperor will confer titles upon the Tibetan rulers, you know, recognizing their legitimacy to rule. And then in 1547, um, so more than a hundred years have passed, um, that there was a resurgence of Mongol power. And the Altan Khan of two men Mongols became the most powerful Mongol ruler in 1547. And he um, so at the time, you know, the Mongol was also split after the ending of Yuan Dynasty. Uh, but the Altan Khan, he forced the Northern Yuan Dynasty royal lineage. Um, so, so after the Mong the the Kublai Khan's descendants fled fled to Mongolia, they they um, kept the pretension of continuing the Yuan dynasty, uh, except they call it, so some historian call it the Northern Yuan dynasty because, you know, they're no, no longer in China proper. And, but the, 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 the direct descendant, right. They, the, it's, uh, of the Kublai Khan is in the, in the Chahar tribe. Um, and they, they, they claim the mantle of being like the, the Khan of all Mongols, but uh, like a cadet branch, the Altai Khan of Tumet, he he became most powerful. But so he forced the Northern Yuan Dynasty royal lineage of Tahar tribe to flee. And but he wanted he needed to boost his own legitimacy because he didn't come from the from the direct um, he didn't come from the direct uh, he 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 didn't come from the direct royal lineage, right? He he came from like a cadet branch of 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 um of Genghis Khan's line. So to boost his own legitimacy, he invited the Tibetan Lama Songnan Gyatso to convert Mongols to Buddhism. So now Mongols initially, when the Mongols met the Tibetans, they, they adopted, um, you know, the Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, there's a side note is that, uh, you know, Buddhism in Tibet also underwent uh, many changes. Uh, you know, one of the changes is that even though initially uh, Buddhism was brought into Tibet by Princess Wenchen, Wenchen Gongzhu from um, from Tang Dynasty China, but eventually, um, because the prox physical proximity with India, they they the Tibetan uh, Buddhist monks they would go directly to India, right, to study Buddhism and bring back Buddhist texts and. Also, with the rise of Islam um, and the invasion of northern India by uh, Islamic Central Asian Turk um, uh, tribesmen, a lot of the Buddhist former, formerly Buddhist kingdoms in in Afghanistan, in northern India, were destroyed. So there were actually a lot of the refugees, uh, you know, Buddhist refugees. They went to Tibet. All these Buddhist refugee monks bringing with them. Uh, you know, kind of the direct knowledge of Buddhism from India. So, so Tibetan Buddhism started to develop its own flavor. It incorporated 
both, um, you know, like a lot of um, a lot of the Indian Buddhism features, but also incorporate a lot of the native uh, Bang religion, which preceded Buddhism in Tibet itself. So, so it incorporate a lot of aspect of the Bang Bang religion religious element into the Tibetan Buddhism. So the the Tibetan Buddhism is kind of a syncretic uh, blending of traditions. Uh, so by the end, by the time um, at the end of the Tibetan Empire, it's, there's also a famous inf- incident where, like the the last Tibetan emperor, he wanted to out ban, he wanted to ban Buddhism, right? And and in fact, the, the according to the Buddhist text, he was assassinated by a, a, a Tibetan Buddhist monk. You know, like um, apparently this monk was a great archer, and then he, during a festival, he uh, just took a shot and, and with one shot killed the Tibetan emperor. And, and it was the death of Tibetan emperor, the Tibetan empire collapsed. And there was, a, you know, there was kind of dying out of the Tibetan Buddhism, both because of the persecution under the last Tibetan emperor and because the civil war that followed. So after the, the, after the descendant of the Tibetan emperor did, found his own kingdom in Western Tibet, in Uga Kingdom, right? Uh, he um, invited uh, an Indian monk to preach Buddhism among his people again. So there was kind of a second importation of Buddhism into Tibet. And as I mentioned before, this also coincided with uh, Islamic expansion into Northern India. So a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Tibet, uh, Indian Buddhist monks went to Tibet to preach uh, and bringing with her, with her religion. So, by, by so by the time when the Mongols met the Tibetans, you know the Tibetan Buddhism is all, already like a well developed, its own kind of own unique tradition. And and the Mongols they adopt took to the B- Tibetan Buddhism because in a lot of Mongol and Tibetan culture are similar because both are uh, kind of uh, pastoral. You know, based on the uh, common shared steppe culture, and so they found the Tibetan Buddhism more palatable, you know, than other version of Buddhism they encounter, like like the Chinese Buddhism, for example. Um, so, by fifteen, uh, but the Mongols, when the Yuan Dynasty collapsed again, you know, there was a kind of the, the, you know, even when the Mongols during the time of Kublai Khan, it's it's more like the upper class Mongols that, that converted to Buddhism, and the Buddhism didn't take a firm hold among the common people of, of Mongolia. But by 1547, when Altan Khan invited the Tibetan Lama Sonan Gyatso to convert Mongols to Buddhism, this time Tibetan Buddhism. So will take hold in the Mongol society, you know, funk down. And and to um you know, of course, you know, the, the Sunan Gyatso also uh, granted le- religious legitimacy to Altan Khan, you know, blessing him, calling him the you know the the, the, the legitimate legitimate Khan. Um and and in return Altan Khan named the Sonan give Sonan Gyatso a title. A title of Dalai Lama. So Dalai is actually a Tibet uh, is a Mongolian term. You know, it, it, it's it, it kind of, it means like the ocean, uh, right? So so Dalai Lama is like oceanic Lama. 
and uh, and and in return, right, Altan Khan's great grandson Yongchen Gyatso then was chosen to be the next Dalai Lama because Dalai Lama they works by reincarnation, right? So so after the the, the death of uh, of an older Dalai Lama, you know, new reincarnation was chosen, but. From the very beginning, the the, the title um, and the position of Dalai Lama was very. Uh, it was designed by politics, right? So Altan Khan designated Tibetan Lama Songnam Gyatso as Dalai Lama, as like a kind of the religious ruler of Tibet. Um, uh, in return for you know Songnam Gyatso giving him kind of religious cover for claiming uh, rule over all the Mongols. And then, um, you know, Altan Khan, his own great-grandson, Yongnan Gyatso, then was made to be the next Dalai Lama. And he was escorted to Tibet by Mongol cavalry to assume his throne. But because he's Mongol and he's not really been accepted by the local Tibetans, um, and in in, 19, in 1604, uh, you know, local Tibetan Tsangpa kings drove him out and the, the other Mongols in 1605. Um, and now now this is also kind of religious, uh, a factional fight as well, because, uh, you know, Mongols that back the Galupa school, uh, right, sometimes called your yellow hat. Um, and, and that's that's a tradition where the, the Dalai Lama comes from. But there, there are other um, Buddhist schools in Tibet with older traditions and you know, there's a Kyagyu school, some sometimes called the the black ads, and and there's uh, but anyways, it's, there's a different sects, right, of Tibetan Buddhism. So so um, one of this uh, from a rival Tibetan Buddhist sect, uh, they they didn't like the Gulupa rule, and they they revolted, and you know, as I mentioned, the Tibetan Tsangpa kings they drove out the Mongols, they drove out the Dalai Lama in 1605. And establish their own rules, uh, but th this this situation didn't last long because uh, then um, this give opportunity to another Mongol tribe, another Mongol Khan, the Gush Khan of the Kushu tribe of of, of the of the Oilat Mongols to invade Tibet to in, in support of the fifth Dalai Lama. So um, the Oilat Mongols are the Western Mongols, and and the the Kushu tribe is uh, a tribe that descended from Genghis Khan's uh, Genghis Khan's younger brother, and so they because they're from Genghis Khan's family, they are, you know there was a rule on the step that only only the the descendants of Genghis Khan's family can claim to be Khan. So so Kush Khan um, of the Kushu tribe, he was he was Khan, but Kushu tribe was a small tribe among the Oilat Mongols. The only reason he's Khan is because he's descent from, from the Genghis Khan's family. Um, but at this time another tribes in in Oilat Mongols are getting powerful. So they're Kush Khan is kind of feeling the pressure, and so he was seeking uh, a different area to expand into. And and now the the religious controversy kind of gave him uh, a excuse. And so he, because Mongols at this time all 
pretty much most of the Mongols are converted to the yellow hat, the Glupa school of Dalai Lama. So he uses uh, expulsion of Dalai Lama as uh, as uh, as a chance to um, you know impose his own rule in Tibet. So Gushi Khan led his tribesmen um, into into Tibet, and he uh, with the Tibet the Mongol cavalry once again de- defeated the local Tibetans, and the, the, the Mongols established their own secular and military rule of Tibet while propping up the fifth Dalai Lama uh, as a spiritual leader. Now, now this is a fifth Dalai Lama is not the, the, the son, great, great grandson of Altai Khan, by, by the way, that was the fourth, I think. So the fifth is, is, this is a new, this is a new Dalai Lama. He was still young. So Gushi Khan probably thinking of using him as a puppet, kind of, kind of, kind of the head figure. While like the Mongols themselves, uh, you know, rule over Tibet, and this this period, uh, you know, Tibet, most of Tibet is part of the Kushu Khanate, right, under the Mongol rule, and um, and then um, so, but the Kushu Khan himself died soon afterwards. This were this were already in the 1600s. So this is a time when the Ming Dynasty was collapsing. Uh, Manchus, you know, burst out of Manchuria. Soon they would conquer all of China, and they also, you know, Manchus wanted to extend the rule to all the Mongols. And and in order to do that, they understand it's very important that they control Dalai Lama because Mongols had had all converted to, you know, the Galupa school of Tibetan Buddhism by this time, and and Dalai Lama is the ultimate, uh, you know, the Kind of the the god king, right? The, the 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 ultimate religious figure. So so then 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 um, then the you know the after the the death of Gushi Khan, the, the fifth Dalai Lama, he you know he grew up into adulthood. He also started to assert his own control. So gradually the Tibetans they they regained the control. Of, uh, of of Tibet, and they started pushing out the descendants of the Gush Khan, um, and and there was a civil war, right, where the where the the the, the Mongols, um, the Mongols got pushed out, uh, and then at this time, you know, this is one of the reasons sometimes the fifth Dalai Lama is called the Great Fifth because he. Uh, established not only to control over Tibet, but he also starting to issue religious edict to all the Mongol tribes, you know, in Mongolia, um, in Central Asia, as far as like Russia, because, you know, at the time, one of the Western Mongol tribes, um, Torgut, have migrated to like the banks of Volga River. And, you know, all these Mongol tribe will send tributary mission to Lhasa, right, to, to, to see the Dalai Lama and seek his blessing. And, and uh, you know, oh, as a side note, at this time, um, one of the person that came to Dalai Lama seeking for help uh, was actually a Muslim cleric from what is today Chimang Kashgar. And he was being kicked out 
you know, at the time, you know, Xinjiang was ruled by kind of the remnant of the Mongol Empire, uh, you know, along the remnant state of the Chagatai uh, Khanate was ruling over Xinjiang. Uh, but but one of the kind of the religious um, leaders of Kashgar, he was being, uh, you know, he lost out in a factional fight uh, among his uh, rival religious order, and he was pushed out of Kashgar. So he went to Lhasa to seek help from Dalai Lama. Now, Dalai Lama has a special relationship uh, with the um, Khan of the, with the leader of uh, the Zhuanggar Mongols in in what is today's northern Xinjiang. And and because uh, Gaodan Khan, Gaodan Khan used to be, um, you know, used to serve in in Lhasa as one of the one of the monks, novice monk under fifth Dalai Lama. So he was a student of of the fifth Dalai Lama. So so fifth Dalai Lama first he issued a edict to Gaodan and 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 grant him the title of Khan. Like I said, the you know before there was a kind of unspoken tradition on the step that only Genghis Khan's family can claim to the title of Khan. Now, Gaodan is from a tribe, uh, you know, the stronger tribe, they have no relationship to the Genghis family. But uh, Dalai Lama, through religion, you know, give him like a backdoor, granted him like a, a, a kind of religious title, you know, of Khan. Um, and, and, and in return to repay Dalai Lama, you know, um, he he also wanted to control the area. What what the area of what's today southern Xinjiang, so the Taran Basin, and and this religious uh, Muslim cleric uh, plea for help gave him the excuse. So he uh, sent the Mongol army across the Tianshan Mountains and 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 soon controlled all the Taran Basin and made made the area his uh, one of his vassal vassal state. He installed that Muslim cleric as the ruler of Kashgar. You know, to pay taxes to the Zhuanggar Mongols, and but Gaodan Khan, uh, the problem with Gaodan is uh, his his he has great ambitions. He, one of his ambition is to kind of unite all the Mongols and revive the legacy of Genghis Khan. And so he invaded. He then invaded um, Mongolia, right? The outer Mongolia. So after Manchu's. Uh, even before Manchu conquest of China, the Manchu subjugated Inner Mongolia first. You know, they they subjugated all the tribes in Inner Mongolia. Um, then they, uh, you know, conquered most much of China, and then uh, Outer Mongolia was out of the, out out of the reach at the moment. But then, when Gaodan invaded from the west, they drove out the uh, the, the Khalkha Mongols from Outer Mongolia to run for help to the border of Inner Mongolia. So at the time, um, so the, all the nobles of Outer Mongolia, then they swore allegiance to the, to the Manchu emperor of China and, and, and you know, basically binding them to, uh, to the rule of Qin Empire. And then uh, you know, Gaodan led his uh, Zhuanggar Mongol force to approaching the Great Wall, um, you know, in an area about 
I think 70 miles outside of Beijing, the Gaudan Mongol had a the 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 Gaudan Khan's Zhuangar Mongols had a encounter with the Qin army, and where the Zhuangar force were defeated. And then the Kangxi Emperor, uh, in the following years, led several expeditions inside Mongolia to destroy the Zhuangar power. And eventually, Gaudan was defeated. He was driven out of Mon Outer Mongolia, and Outer Mongolia became part of the Qin Empire. And then, um, you know, the Zhuangar and Qin uh, war would last another hundred years from that. But eventually, because because this, uh, you know, one of the Zhuangar Khan, you know, also took the opportunity to interfere in the succession in Tibet. Because after the fifth Dalai Lama passed away, uh, there was another kind of struggle of succession. So after the the the, the fifth. So after the fifth Dalai Lama passed away, the, the sixth Dalai Lama was chosen as a young man from um, what would be today the India-occupied um, area, what they call Ar Arun Arunachal Pradesh. But it's this uh, Tibetan, well, it's this uh, uh, area that's uh, culturally Tibet. Um, uh, it's so the. Let me let me pull pull up. So at the time, um, uh, the Sung, Dalai Lama, was a, a man from uh, Dawang, the, the Dawang Monastery, uh, who who was then chosen. You know, because he was very he was very young. Um, so you know, like his regions control all the power, but then there was a kind of Court struggle, you know, for power, um, and and the in the in the result, the Mongols, the the uh, the uh, the Khan's descendants were driven out, and then the Zhuangars uh, took the opportunity to launch their own invasion of Tibet. So they from what is today Xinjiang, the cross uh, uh, Karakoram uh, Mountains, cross the Kunlun Mountains. Um, into Tibet, occupied Tibet for for a little bit, and the sixth Dalai Lama fled, you know, to seek help from from China, and then then he died in very, and then you know the Manchu Emperor Kangxi then sent a, a Qin army into Tibet to expel the Zhuangar Mongols, because at this point the Qin Empire and the Zhuangar Khanate has been, uh, you know, engaged in battle for many years, and you know, one of the uh, and the Kangxi Emperor also recognized the Tibet was very important because he, in order to control Mongols, he needed to control the Dalai Lama. So this um, at this time, so six Dalai Lama on on his, you know, when he was fled fleeing the Mongol invasion, he died. Uh, under mysterious circumstances, now Qin they uh, they they chose the seventh Dalai Lama, right? Under uh, the, the Qin army protection, the Inter Lhasa. So this time, uh, this would be like 1600s, uh, the late 1600s. So the uh, about 1670s, I think, and the Qin dynasty then established. Its own rule over over Tibet, uh, kind of make, making Tibet its own protectorate, uh, and 
you know, officially the, you know, because the Manchu emperors themselves also converted to Tibetan Buddhism. So they granted kind of the Dalai Lama, the uh, kind of the honorary title as the teacher of the emperors. But in essence, uh, you know, the, 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 the Manchu court tightened their control of Tibet. Uh, and then, then um, but the, the Mongol, the Manchus didn't, the, the Qin dynasty didn't leave uh, a permanent military presence. They just left uh, a, a kind of a, a, a envoy, right, in the, in the Lhasa. But then, uh, uh, like a, less than 100 years down the road, in the 1700s, Tibet was invaded from the south by Nepal. Right, because Nepal at the time was uh, coming into being under the Gorkhas. So the Gorkhas they founded their own state in Nepal, and it was very warlike, uh, militaristic state. And Nepal was expanding from all direction. One direction it expanded to was into Tibet. They send in uh, armies to threaten Lhasa. So then the Qin, uh, this time the Qin Emperor Qianlong sent a, a, a huge army into Tibet to expel the Gorkhas, and then they actually cross the Himalayas to lay siege to the Gorkha capital near what's today's Kathmandu. Um, so, so then the Qin subjugated uh, Nepal as a vassal state, um, but he also tightened the control in Tibet. So, so from this point, the Qin uh, would station an army in Tibet. You know, the, the, the Manchu Anban, which is kind of the imperial envoy in Tibet will have like oversee um, the, the Tibetan administration. And so from 1700s onwards, basically, uh, the Qin dynasty assumed more formal control of Tibet as its own territory, um, right? So from, you know, like from maps of European maps made of China from 1800s, you can, uh, there's the Zhang Daoer map from I think 1860, um, you can 1860, 1850, you can see like Tibet is included as part of the Chinese Empire. You know, Qin, under Qin Dynasty, it's when all this area of Mongolia, Tibet, uh, Xinjiang was brought into um, uh, part of the Qin Empire. Right. So, so now, now we have got to the point where, you know, Tibet was recognized as part of the Qin Empire. Now, uh, you know, I know there's an argument of saying, oh, uh, but the Qin rulers are Manchus, right? They're not Han Chinese. But that doesn't matter because, um, you know, in the Qin documents itself, they refer to their state as China. They, you know, they, the, in the Manchu term, uh, uh, they they call it uh, they call it uh, Dumbling Gurum, which means Central Kingdom, right? Which is transliteration from the Chinese Zongguo, which means uh, you know China, the Chinese term for China. So the the Manchus emperors themselves and in all their official document refer the entity as China, and this 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 this. You know, there is, by this time, Tibet is undisputedly part of China. And uh, any questions at this point? Oh, no, just keep going. You're good. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So, uh, uh, you know, at this time, you know, Tibet would experience a couple more border issues. Um, so in 1839, uh, this is around the time when OP, uh, around the time Opium War started. Uh, the in in northwest India, so the the Mughal Empire um, has collapsed. In Mughal, after the the collapse of Mughal Empire, um, in the northwest India rose the Sikh Empire. So Sikh Empire subjugated a quite large area in northwest India, and it became very dominant military power. One of the vassal states uh, of the Sikh Empire is this uh, Dogra dynasty of Jammu, and they the 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 Dogra ruler Gulab Singh would expand his control into Kashmir, into uh, the Buddhist region of Ladakh, and after that he sent um, he sent um, his general on a on the invasion of Tibet in 1839. Now, the Chinese historian believes this is in conjunction with the British. Now, in conjunction with the Opium War. Now, I, I wasn't too sure about that because uh, by the time, this time, Gulab Singh was still nominally a subject of Sikh Empire. But then again, you know, just a couple of years down the road, Gulab Singh will sell out the Sikh Empire to the British. Uh, you know, like in a very, in a very, you know, dastardly act of betrayal. You know, Gulab Singh just sold the Sikh Empire down the river to the British, and in return, the British recognized his rule over Jammu Kashmir. You know, he he he's founded the princely state of Jammu Kashmir. So maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Um, uh, but but I think Moses' motive was still for, for personal profit, to expand his own territory. And and this force, the Dogra force, um, they, they actually went pretty deep inside Tibet. And the Qing um, government at this time, they had to organize um, a Qing-Tibetan force to counterattack uh, in the middle of the winter. And eventually they were able to uh, defeat this invasion force, uh, get, uh, behead its general and push back all the way back to Ladakh. So that's how the, that that now became like the Indian China border, you know, around Ladakh area. And then, um, um, you know, the Qing rule over Tibet hasn't been questioned until um, you know, so so the British at this time it already started beating up all the various uh, states in India. You know, the, the British East India Company would start to expand its control eventually to all of India. And and as I mentioned, you also consume the Sikh Empire and and recognize its collaborator Gulab Singh as the head ruler of Jammu Kashmir. And then in in um, in 1900, so at this time, so 
the, the British is always very paranoid about their holding on India because mm-hmm. India is considered the crown of the British Empire. You know, the, most of the wealth they of the British Empire they extracted from India, right? Uh, you know, like the the you know when the when the the British they talk about colonization, they say, oh, you know, we we built a railroad, a civil service system. Um, hospitals, you know, civilization, right? But but in truth, British extracted a lot, a lot of wealth from India. That's why they're very paranoid um, that they will lose India. Uh, you know, at this time, the Russian Empire was also expanding in Central Asia. Uh, they, they, they start the, the, you know, they started to Butt heads around the region of Afghanistan, right? So the British launched a couple failed expedition into Afghanistan, and then finally they decided, okay, it's not worth it. They're just gonna make uh, make sure the Afghan has some kind of a British-friendly puppet state that's friendly to the British interest, and and then they still worry about the the, the Russian Cossacks would uh, ride down from Kashmir into into India. So they um, they negotiated with the, the, the Russians to divide up the Central, Central Asian area. Um, they basically give a part of uh, um, Pamir to Russian, part to Britain, and then um, they carve up this very narrow strip of land called the Wakhan Corridor and give that to Afghanistan to separate to physically separate the British and the Russian Empire. But now the British still worry that the Russians would somehow go through Xinjiang uh, and then expand down to Tibet, you know, then threaten British India from the north. So in 1900s, British decided to take matter in its own hand because they felt, you know, the, the Qin Empire was too weak to resist Russia. So they must, you know, better that they take uh, Tibet themselves. So there was a young husband expedition in 1900 from launched from um, with 10,000, with more than 10,000 men. They launched from, from British India, across the Himalayas into Tibet. Um, they, they went into Lhasa. So at the time was the 13th Dalai Lama. He fled into, to outer Mongolia um, because the historical tie between you know the uh, Mongols and Tibetans, and uh, left behind you know the, the Tibetan officials and the Qin uh, envoy to negotiate. Um, so the the Tibetan un- official told young husbands like, okay, sorry, the Dalai Lama is not here, so we can't. We're not authorized to make any treaties with you, uh, and the the Qin envoy. You know, invite the young husband to 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 banquet every day. But when pressed on about treaties, the, the Qin envoy said, "Oh, sorry, I'm just an envoy here. I, I don't have any authority from imperial government to make any treaty with you." So, so young husband grew increasingly frustrated, um, and and eventually, you know, he strong armed the local Tibetan officials to make like a. Um, under the table deal with him, uh, basically granting British uh, trading privileges in Tibet, uh, the the, uh, the the privilege of British to station troops in 
and they also carve up this uh, area of uh, Tibetan border with India to be uh, occupied by the British um, for like 90 years um, until the Tibetan pays up all the um, war indemnities, you know, because, you know, the Tibetan has to pay British for the privilege of invading them. Um, so until the Tibetans pay up, the, the, the British will occupy this area. And... And then, you know, he returned home triumphant. And he actually wrote a letter to his wife. He's like, ah, aha, I secured this area for Britain for, for a long time because the Tibetans wouldn't be able to pay up for a long time. And, you know, I have stopped the, the, the Russian, I have stopped the Russian expansion to British India forever. You know, they're so paranoid about losing India, you know, to, to, to outside power. That they will even invade Tibet to do that, and and this also started a lot of the, pro- a lot of the problem with the China Indian border issue could date from this period, you know, of, of British India because the British they will start to draw lines in the map that they think uh, better protect their interests in India. Um, so they, the so let's switch uh, the lens a little bit to. to Tibet right, and China. Thirteenth Dalai Lama that he fled the British invasion into outer Mongolia. You know where? Uh, then he ran into a problem because um, you know in outer Mongolia he still he still demand the protocol that he be treated like the God King because uh, you know as uh, the, the Tibetan Buddhist religion is a God King, right? Um, because in outer Mongolia they have their own have their own like high lama, their own like um, kind of the head head of the order. But but you know the Dalai Lama demanded he being given the head of the the table, and you know he he sit on the throne. The the Mongolian lama be seated uh, beneath him, and all that. So in the end, like Dalai Lama kind of wore out his welcome in out of Mongolia, and then he had to he had to move again. This time moved to Beijing, right, to, to see the Empress Dowager Cixi and the, the, the Chinese emperor. And uh, again, you know, like in Beijing, certain da- Dalai Lama tried to present himself as like the teacher of the emperor. He, he, he felt he should be uh, at a higher place than the Chinese emperor. And the Dowager Cixi is like, no, kneel. Uh, and you know, told him to kuto, right, which is means prostrate yourself and and knock your head on the on the on the floor. And 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 the Thirteenth Dalai Lama found that outrageous. You know, it's like how I'm the teacher of the emperor. You know, I don't you know I don't do that. You you should bow to me. And then Sushi is like, no kneel. And then then you know, eventually uh, Sushi blamed the Thirteenth Dalai Lama for not stopping the British invasion. So she exiled him to uh, a Lama Suri on Wutai Mountain in, in one of the China's famous Buddhist mountains in Wutai San. And then, um, you know, so, so Dalai Lama was kind of, kind of under house arrest, basically. He was confined to that, to that monastery. Uh, while, uh, you know, the, the Cixi, uh, Dowager uh, Cixi authorized a Chinese army uh, to march into Tibet um, in 19, 
starting from 1905. Um, and then, then uh, the Sushi Dowager died a few years later. Um, then so those 13 Dalai Lama were able to kind of basically get away um, from confinement in Wutaisan. He went back to Tibet for a little bit. But at this time, the, the Chinese army was making its way into Tibet, you know, by, by 1910. So because, you know, the, the, the Qing dynasty core were very concerned about the British incursion, especially after young husband's uh, expedition to Tibet, the, the Qing government decided to bring Tibet even more under the control of central government. That's that's uh, why they wanted they wanted even talk talk about discuss uh, abolish the office of Dalai Lama, put uh, Tibetan convert Tibet into a, a, a centrally administered province. You know that's why you know sending in the Chinese army, um, and then the. The British commissioner in Sikkim, uh, he's like the foreign office guy for the British India, Charles Bell. He, um, so he scored a coup, a diplomatic coup, by convincing Dalai Lama to flee to India. Uh, this then he hosted Dalai Lama in Sikkim. Sikkim was a you know like another Tibetan this kingdom that uh, originally was, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, have some kind of nominal relationship, like a vassal relationship with Tibet. But when the British came, they absorbed uh, Sikkim. And then, um, and then the, the host is the Dalai Lama there um, and then plotted for his return. So that happened couple of years later, in 2011, the Chinese revolution broke out, you know, the, um, the, the Wuchang uprising in uh, October 10th, 1911. Then all the provinces of China started to declare their independence from the Qin, uh, Qin dynasty court. Um, and at this time, there was still a Chinese army in Lhasa. So, um, <laughs> The British, the, so so the but the, the the problem with the Chinese army in Lhasa is that they was fighting among themselves because um, the first the the, the lower ranking uh, officers they you know a lot of them were anti Qing government so they they conspired to kill the Qing commander and then once they they kill the Qing commander they uh, they did another. Um, uh, 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 they, they promoted another commander. It's ironic. They killed the Qing commander, but the, but the replacement commander was actually uh, the Manchu cousin of the lady. But anyway, so and and then they they also got involved with uh, factional struggles in Tibet, right? Because at the time there's. Um, uh, you know, there's Dalai Lama, there's also Bantan Lama. So Bantan Lama and Dalai Lama, they were um, kind of number well, number one and number two, right, of the Galupa school. And supposedly, you know, the the Bantan Lama is supposed to be the teacher of Dalai Lama before he comes to the come come of age, and vice versa. But at, the Qin Dynasty kind of promoted the the Bantan Lama as kind of rival 
power within the, the Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so by this time, there was already tension between the Bantan Lama and then the, the Dalai Lama sect faction. And, and then, uh, you know, the Qin army was in Lhasa. They had their own you know, internal problems. And then the British financed Dalai Lama to return to Tibet on, in the head of a, a large Tibetan army. You know, financed by by the British, uh, but they actually didn't have any um, any commanders who with military experience to lead this large army. So they end up hiring um, uh, uh, this Chinese guy. So so as as I mentioned, the, the, the Chinese army in Lhasa was split after the revolution. A lot of the revolutionaries in the in the in the lower rank and files they they conspired to kill the commander. Uh, so one of the commander fled, and, and and now he fled to the to the Dalai Lama side. So the Dalai Lama made him the commander of the Tibetan army. So this is a really odd situation. The 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 Dalai Lama's Tibetan army was headed by a Han Chinese guy. Whereas the Chinese army in Lhasa was headed by the Manchu guy, who was cousin to the late emperor. So, so there was a standoff in Lhasa for several months uh, because uh, because the the, the the Sichuan army in in Lhasa they had um, they had modern you know equipments uh, you know firearms, uh, Western firearms and artilleries and stuff. So even though the Tibetans they have they're large in numbers. They couldn't break through the siege. They couldn't. They couldn't. Uh, you know, and so there were. And the Lhasa ended up in a siege for for several months. Um, then eventually, the, the the defenders they ran out. They ran low on ammunition and food, and so the the British again. You know, they broke a peace, which allowed basically the, the 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 Chinese troops to leave Lhasa with their arms, uh, but at the order with the British India, they were to hand their weapons to, to the British authority, and then they would be able to grant it a passage home through Calcutta, you know, taking the ship back to, back to China. So that happened around 1912, uh, 1913. So, so, so basically, after the expulsion of Chinese army from Lhasa, uh, Dalai La- 13th Dalai Lama returned to Tibet to become like the head of the government. So by this time, uh, you know, the Republic of China government, they actually have very little control in Tibet. Uh, in fact, there was a, um, they, they were concerned that, you know, they are, the British was turning Tibet into like a puppet state, into, a, into a, like, a, a, like its own protectorate. So there was a border war uh, because the, the at the time the the president of Republic of China was Yuan Sikai, right? Um, he ordered the warlords from Sichuan and Yunnan to send expedition into Tibet. Uh, they met at the border, um, so the, the the new expedition was launched. Uh, the warlord army, uh, you know, pushed the Tibetan forces all the way to the bank of. Uh, Chinsa River, which is uh, kind of the, the up, upper reach of Yangtze River, um, and that became the border, basically, of modern Sichuan and Tibet. Now, the British uh, 
was panicking because they, they didn't want another Chinese army march on Lhasa. So they intervened, you know, they applied diplomatic pressure to force the Republic of China government to stop the expedition and to kind of hold the current border between um, China, uh, between between uh, kind of Dalai Lama government and the Republic of China government. And so in 1914, the British, uh, just before the World War One, the British convened another, um, it's called Simla Convention, invited the delegation from the Tibetan government and the Beijing uh, government to talk about the issue of Tibetan border. So the idea of the British Indian government is that they propose what's so-called the Outer Tibet and Inner Tibet. So the Outer Tibet will be uh, in control by Dalai Lama's government, right? The so-called Inner Tibet um, will be directly controlled by the Republic of China. And, and then they, they didn't want to recognize China's sovereignty over Tibet. So they invented a term called suzerainty, right? So, so that way, the, the, the Tibet is still, uh, so China have suzerainty over Tibet. So Tibet still in some kind of vassal relationship with China, uh, but then Tibet will have its de facto independence, you know, governing in governance of its own affairs. And then, you know, no third nation will be allowed to, um, Station troops in Tibet because British are still worried about the Russians, um, and and then basically, essentially, it's turning into the Tibet Central Tibet on Dalai Lama into like a, a British protectorate. Then, in addition to that, you know, at the time, the the British officer uh, McMahon he did a survey of the border between. British India and Tibet, and he realized, wait a minute, the traditional border actually runs, the traditional border of Tibet actually runs to the foothills of Himalayas on the south side of Himalayas, right? They extend to the southern Himalayan foothills. So he feel like that's unacceptable because they're worrying about Russians. So they're like, okay, the, the, the traditional boundaries of Tibet runs all the way kind of to the plains. Uh, they hold the high ground. There's no way for us to defend against attack from the direction of Tibet because people will, enemy will come from from the from the hills, from from high ground to to low. So he he advised to push the border all the way up to the Himalayan ridge, to the highest peak of Himalayan ridge. Uh, he asked the Tibetan government to cede all the land south of. Uh, of the Himalayan range uh, area to to the British India, right? And, and this was supposed to be like um, the price the British demanded for helping Tibet to settle its border with Republic of China. But now the 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 Chinese envoys, oh, you know, sent by the Beijing government, he was a Chinese diplomat in UK for many years, but he knows the ways of the British, and he of course refused to sign. He says, "Like this is ridiculous. You know, the, the British has no rights to involve themselves into internal affairs of China. This is between 
the Ch local uh, Tibetan government and the central government in Beijing, right? So he refused to sign. And now, uh, now the British was left with nothing. So instead, they tried to salvage the situation by making the the Tibetan government to sign uh, to ratify the treaty uh, with them. So so before it was a trilateral treaty between Beijing government, Tibetan government, and British. Now it's just a the treaty between Tibetan government and, and the British. And uh, 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 in fact. You know, this was in direct violation of uh, the, the treaty Britain Britain signed with the Russian Empire just before that, because they had they had an understanding between Russia that no no one, neither British nor Russian, is supposed to sign any treaty with local Tibetan government without uh, the others' knowledge. And like they they're not supposed to enter a unilateral. Um, like a bilateral thing without like approval from government of Beijing, because they also worry that each each didn't want the other to gain upper hand in bed, right? So they they wanted to. It's this so-called the great game between <laughs> the Great Britain and and the Russian Empire, and and so the the British they found the results so embarrassing they end up choosing not to publish this uh, treaty at all you know that all the everything was shoved into the archives um even the so-called like, online which would given the southern foothills of himalayas to british india and that will remain the way so so the the the, the tibetan government will still send um you know administrators to the dawang monastery in uh, in you know in southern slope of Himalayas. Now now re the reminder the Dalai Monastery is where the six Dalai Lama actually came from, right? So it's culturally a very important part of Tibet. And then in uh, in 1930s, um, the other the, another British administrator. It was also, you know, World War One happened, so the British was distracted, you know, a <laughs> little bit distracted from the, the the problems of Tibetan border because, you know, there's much more problem at hand in Europe. Um, and then, but in 1930s, when uh, Japanese started to invade China, now the British are, are now worried again about losing their... You know, crown, crown of uh, the jewel of the, uh, of their crown, India, right? From from an invasion launch in Tibet, so so they're afraid somehow the Japanese will eventually take over China and then come from come from Tibet into British India. So they uh, they start to look up the search up arc. Oh, so at the time in 1930s, they send in um, a a. a Bought like a spy mission under the guise of uh, you know botany research into uh, the foothill Himalayan foothills, right? So 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 of course the British spy was arrested by the by the local Tibetan authority. They complained into to the British uh, Indian government, and at the time the British Indian government looked into it and they 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 start to dust off the archive and they realized. 
oh, wait a minute, in 1914, we actually signed a similar convention that uh, Tibet was supposed to give this land to us. So now the, the, the governor of British India, he ordered all the maps to be changed, right, to publish this new, new map showing that uh, this area uh, at the time called Northeast Agency is to be part of British India. He ordered all the old maps destroyed. Uh, he also manually uh, Sorry, I, I had to uh, my dog was gonna poop in the yard. I had to let him out. Um, <laughs> so so he dusted off the archives, uh, found this like uh, you know, this, spider web covered uh, uh, treaty that supposedly part of land to British India. He ordered all the new, old map destroyed, a new map published, and all the publisher around the world to publish with this new map showing the, you know, this, the, this land is now British India. And, uh, you know, at this time, uh, but still, at this time, the, 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 the British were just um, doing this on maps. They still haven't, because this is approaching World War II already. They didn't, you know, to, to do another land grab. And then um, finally, you know, after World War II, you know, like around the time, um, just before the, the India independence, the, and the British sending troops over there, um, starting to expel the the, the Tibetan uh, administrators. It's all only up to the Dao, the, the, the so-called Dawang track. Um, so the the Dawang monastery still remain under of the the Tibetan administrators until 1950. You know, even after the the, the British left, um, and then. In nineteen, um, uh, so 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 then, let, let's just shift the focus back to Tibet itself, right? So at this time, you know, thirteen Dalai Lama came back to Lhasa at the head of army, reestablished his control, and there's um, Basically, he, there was an attempt to kind of, you know, modernize Tibet and, 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 and create, do like so-called nation building, right, in Tibet itself. But Tibet is still um, from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, at the time of, after the collapse of Qing dynasty, after the Chinese revolution, Outer Mongolia and Tibet actually signed a treaty. They recognized each other's independence. Right, but it's a uh, no. No other country have recognized this, and um, you know, if you look at all the maps during World War II, they all show you know Tibet as part of Republic of China. Um, so, so while Dalai Lama had de facto control of Tibet, 13th Dalai Lama had c control of Tibet during this time. He was not recognized in any international treaty or by any um, state. And also because China happened to be the allies in World War II, right? You know, on, this, on the side of the, the 
the Americans and the British. So, you know, in all the maps, you, you see Tibet was part of China. And, and then, um, now this would be a good time to talk about that Hollywood movie, uh, Seven Year in Tibet. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, like Nazis uh, actually sent in several so-called scientific expedition to Tibet around this time. Because Nazi had this crazy belief that um, the ancient Aryans, uh, their last holdout was in Tibet, right? And there's some uh, find the last vestige of the ancient Aryan civilization. So they had Nazi scientists, you know, carrying with them skull uh, scalpers, you know, to measure all the different Tibetan skulls. To see if they're descendants of the ancient Aryans, um, and and from this, you know, there, there was a there was a Nazi um, uh, there was a Nazi climber, right? And another along with the expedition, there was also a time now like a lot of the Europeans are trying to climb the Mount Everest and all that, and there was a climbing uh, Nazi climbing expedition. Um, uh, all the Nazi so at this time, the war broke out in Europe, right? World War One broke out. So now, uh, the Nazi members of this class—they're going to escape uh, being arrested by the British by by running into Tibet. So one of the guy uh, went to Tibet. Uh, he is author of Seven Year in Tibet. Now this guy, he is not only a Nazi member, party penitent Nazi party member, because even after the war, you know, people have asked him about his association with the Nazi party. And this guy is just unapologetic, right, about his past association with Nazi party. Now, a movie called, uh, you know, based on his book, Seven Year in Tibet, starring Brad Pitt, banned from traveling to China for several years. Um, it's on the story of the Austrian uh, Harrier, right? So, in the, in the, you, you, you've seen the movie. Maybe you can talk about it. Yeah. So, I watched the movie bit. like uh, two nights ago, two days ago, uh, you know, and, it started off with um, Brad Pitt playing some dude. Uh, was, what was his name? God damn it. Um, let me see real quick. Heinrich Heirer. And yeah, yeah, in the beginning, it started at him as a Nazi, right? Like a Nazi explorer. And then like it showed him like, oh, I don't like the Nazis, you know. But then, you know, he was trying to climb uh, Mount Everest, I think, right? And in the movie, and then you know he couldn't do it because he, he fucked up his leg or something, and then he eventually like went to Tibet, and then with his friend trying to escape India because he was a political prisoner, because you know obviously India's part of the British Empire at that time, you know, and the British were in war with the Nazis, and then you know he made friends with the Dalai Lama, and then. It was like a lot of like anti-Chinese like propaganda in the movie, right? It was like they're showing like random like Chinese people, <laughs> like the, the communists, like 
like flamethrowing villages and stuff. I was like, what the fuck is this? And to me, it was just like, obviously it was, it's a Western propaganda movie. I, I remember seeing that movie when I was a kid and I was like, what the, what is this? You know, like I said, like, you know, people that listen to this show regularly know that, you know, my stepdad's Chinese. Um, I don't remember, I don't remember his reaction to that movie. But I remember watching the movie as a kid and then seeing those, like in the movie, the Chinese generals and they're stepping on that sand art. I don't know if you remember that scene. Oh, I saw it from the clip. Yeah. Me, myself. Uh, in- I think you're breaking up. The trailer of this? Yeah, you're breaking up a little Can bit. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. So I I seen the movie only in, in parts. Um, like I never seen the, the full movie. And, and, from the parts I've seen, like what the scene that you described, I, I saw that, and it was just like such a character, you know, like that was totally not historically accurate. First, uh, you know, the Brad Pitt's character, he was a unrepentant Nazi. He, you know, not like the, uh, the reluctant Nazi he was portrayed to be in the movie, and he was actually filmed, you know, the, with three other climbers together with out. Adolf Hitler, right, in his Nazi, <laughs> all his Nazi glory. And um, and then the, you know, the, the period, the, the film covers basically the book, which which detail his, his uh, stay in Tibet. So basically, at this time, you know, you know, 13th Dalai Lama's Tibet was kind of a isolated theocracy. Right. I mean, uh, that's probably the best way to describe it, because, uh, you know, the 13th Dalai Lama, he was a god king. The, the the Tibetan society at this time was still very feudal. Right. I mean, like the the church, the um, the monasteries and the um, the aristocracy, they own like like 90 percent of the land, the wealth and the people. Right, because majority, ninety percent of the Tibetans at the time were serfs. They were like, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll get it. Let me, let me, let me. Um, I guess finish my observation a little bit, and we'll get into that part, okay? Um, if you don't mind. Hello. Go ahead. Yeah. So the movie was, you know, the reason why. So yeah, I, I, I you know, come, you know, planning this episode. I was like, I'm going to retouch that movie, even though, you know, we, the reason why I touched that movie is because me and you always talk about movies, right? We were, I think we're both movie buffs, right? So, and that's the really famous movie about the bet. I mean, obviously, you know, Western people like, like, you know, Americans or British, they like to like point that movie out. That's, you know, that's how like in the West they, they, they live like, oh, have you seen this movie? You know, you know, acting as like movies are some kind of fucking documentary when they're not. So, um, I you know when I searched that movie on Prime, Amazon Prime, there was a ton of Tibetan movies, of documentaries. Right, I watched some of them, and most of them were really like, well, most of them, or like all of them, were really anti-Chinese except one but that was like six minute documentary that wasn't anti-Chinese right but they were all like super <laughs> like anti-Chinese and this is one of them that was like followed some like like I don't know some gorilla that was the Tibetan gorilla that was anti-Chinese and he's talking about how the you know the the, the gorillas stopped fighting in the 70s 
you know, I guess a communist. But, you know, in the movie, they really, they they portrayed the Chinese as like evil and there was like a prophecy that the communists were going to come in and they were evil. And I was like, what, you know, what is this shit? So, but, you know, and to me, you know, it was really hard because, you know, being a native person, you know, you know, in, in the, um, in the U S government, um, occupying this land, um, you know, you, you, you think, you think that, um, you know, you know, the West makes it seem that the propaganda makes it seem like, like China's occupying Tibet, right? And they're like committing, you know, like cultural genocide and, you know, and they're oppressing, you know, and all these other things, you know, you hear from the West constantly, right? <clears throat> so, so running around 2005, um, I don't know how I got across this article. I read an article about like, how Dalai Lama was a CIA asset, right? And how, you know, they helped him escape. And, you know, there was like CIA operation in Tibet to kind of break about break apart China, and which it makes sense because, you know, CIA being in, in Hong Kong, we, we talked about this in another episode, and in, in, in Taiwan, <clears throat> you know, like this, the, the U.S. wants to break apart, break apart China. They want, like, little states you know, anti-communist states, pro-Western states around China, you know, to put, I guess, to keep China By the way, the the CIA involvement in Tibet is all out in the open. It's not even a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's not. Dalai Lama's older brother was a liaison between uh, Dalai Lama's government and the CIA. And he recently um, wrote a memoir, right, about his own life. And he openly regretted working with CIA. And he, he basically said, uh, you know, I have come to realize, you know, CIA were just using us as a palm in this power struggle against China. They have no interest in, in genuinely helping the Tibetan people. You know, they were they were seeing they were just using us to to, you know, carry out uh, their anti China agendas. Yeah. So this is from Dalai Lama. Yeah. So, when, you know, I think to share a personal story, when I was at UC San Diego, you know, doing my undergrad, um, UC San Diego has a program to like, oh, you, you know, they can have students meeting with the Dalai Lama personally, right? So I applied, and I, I guess I almost got picked, but then I didn't get, I didn't get chosen to meet the Dalai Lama because I don't know what, but I guess UC San Diego found out that my stepdad was Chinese. <laughs> So this, so what? This, yeah, this found out. So then, like later on, when I didn't get picked, I was like, "Why didn't I get?" I asked the guy. I forgot what's his name, the professor, and I asked, asked him why. Why didn't I get picked to meet the Dalai Lama? He was like, "Because your stepdad's Chinese." I was like, "What the fuck is that?" You know, I was like, "What was I gonna do?" You know, like I was like, "This is the stupidest shit I've ever heard." So I, I guess I didn't get picked because my stepdad was Chinese. You know, so wow. Yeah, so to me, and that's what I was told. You know, at first he was reluctant to tell me. I can see it. I was like, man, like, and then like he and then he told me, and I was like, what a fucking stupid fucking excuse, right? And you know, like, I already had that, that you know, I kind of felt that coming. Like, you know, I was like, they know something that you know, but you know, it's not like. 
you know, it's one of those things where, like I said earlier, like as a native person, you know, you you don't want, you know, other people occupying. But then when I read this article in 2000 and um, this UC San Diego thing happened like in 2015, I think. But when I read that article back in 2005, yeah, I read that like the Dalai Lama was really like brutal against people. Like they were like, you know, um, enslaving people and they were like a monarchy, you know. And, you know, you got to think about like 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, like communists did try to get a, get rid of monarchies. I mean, it's, it's a thing. Like who wants a monarchy under, you know, um I think somebody's calling you, <laughs> but oh no! I mean, it's 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 not just a monarchy; it's a theocracy, right? Yeah. I mean, Dalai Lama is not just a head of a secular government. He is a, he is a god king, right? He's yeah. he's the reincarnation. Of, you know, he's 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 literally divine, and and he's uh, you know he's not both both a religious leader and a secular leader, and and um, you know we. There, there, I mean, there's so we are now getting to like the real controversial part yeah. of the modern Eden history, right? So, like from what the, the period I have talked about from from the prehistory up to 1930s, I, I think it's pretty. I, I mean, I don't think there's too much controversy around that. You know, we no. talk about the British imperialism. You know how how Tibet became part of China, but now we're going to talk about the modern. Uh, history of Tibet. There's so much mythology around it. Uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, as a native person, there's a lot of analogy in the Western narrative to compare uh, China, Tibet situation to the European colonization of the Americas. I mean, that's that's just outrageous. But that's how they do I mean, it. Like, that's, a, that's how they do it with, with Hong Kong. That's how. That's exactly how they're painting it in Hong. Just, let's let's move just to Hong Kong a little bit. They're painting China like colonizing Hong Kong, which I find ironic because my stepdad was born in Hong Kong, right? And when I asked him I, last summer, when I went to California last summer, and I asked him, "How do you feel about the situation in Hong Kong?" and he told me. That's just British people trying to recontrol Hong Kong again. We're Chinese. We, we don't want, get out of Hong Kong. We don't want you back back in Hong Kong. You know, British people, Americans. He, you know, and he's really like I said before in other in other episodes. Like I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, like I was like, thank yeah, God. Well, I mean, the thing that's rarely talk about in Western media is kind of generation divide in Hong Kong. Like most of the older people who have actually lived. Um, under the British colonial rule, they were against the Hong Kong protests, right? Like the the, the the Hong Kong protest is primarily driven by the young, by the people who never ever lived, had to live under the colonial rule of the British, right? <laughs> and like, because there's a sharp contrast, and you know, there's even news about how. Uh, some of the protesters are getting kicked out from their home from, by their parents because of protests because you know they they they, they disagree on on the politics. I mean it's 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 very telling, right? Like that like the people who had to actually live under the British rule were totally against this. Yeah, I agree, and that that's the thing that with Tibet, it's really hard, you know, for me. You know, I'm I'm not saying that I, I, I agree with, with anything propaganda against China. I don't, you know, but you know, but in the same time I heard that China 
like gives autonomy to the bands. I heard that they build infrastructure. I heard that, you know, they give like preferences, you know, in universities and, you know, in jobs in Tibet. And I also read an article with like this last week that Tibetans are living in India, exiled Tibetans are living in India to go back to China, to back to go back to Tibet, right? And because the, the people in India are, are really like racist toward Tibetans, right? So what I read, I don't know, right? That's that's one thing that's rarely talked about in Western English language media is that you know when they talk about cult, so-called cultural genocide, but they what they what they don't say is like actually the Tibetan culture in India, you know, is very much under threat, you know, compared to Tibetan culture in Tibet, uh, which is which is still there, you know the. the you know the Tibetan uh, uh, the, the community in India is mostly dwindling in physical numbers because people are leaving India. Yeah. You know, go to other parts of the world. Uh, so, you know, some to the west, some returning to Tibet. Uh, and like, there's a lot of pressure, you know, to assimilate into the Indian society. You know, so, so actually, the the there wasn't much preservation of the Tibetan culture among the Tibetan diaspora in, in India. That's something that, that's not discussed at all. Yeah, and there's also like the whole like Muslim, like, um, you know, racism against Muslims in, in India too. Like, you know, there's a whole rise of Hindu nationalism in India. There's a whole another conversation, right? But, you know, um, it's one of those things that, um, I don't know, like, you know, me, my, my family are not like anti Tibet, like we, you know, you know, my family's, my Chinese family, like, are, you know, like we believe in that one China thing, like, you know, Hong Kong, Tibet, um, and Taiwan are one China, right? I mean, like, you know, when I, when I speak to other Chinese people, you know, they acknowledge there's like, you know, like, I don't know, like over 30 or I don't know how many, you know, ethnicities in, in China, you know, like nobody's, nobody that I know that's Chinese, that's Han's, even Han Chinese, no, nobody says there's only one ethnicity in China, right? Obviously, there's so many different um, uh, tribes or, you know, ethnicities in China. You know, just like here in the U.S., there's like, you know, over 500 tribes in the U.S., just in the U.S., not including Canada or Mexico, you know, for Native Americans, just for Native I, Americans, right? So in China, I obviously... Think when- when the Americans and the Westerners talk about China, there's a lot of projection, right? First is a projection of the the narrative of genocide, right? They're kind of trying, kind of transpose their their own guilt about perpetuating the genocide on Native Americans onto onto China, right? And then they try to portray China as some kind of Han supremacist ethno state, right? When what they're really doing is projection from you know, their own nation's history into, you know, onto what China is doing, in fact, may have nothing to do with China or, or, or what's happening in China. It, there's a lot of just psychological projection, you know, of their own own guilty conscience, seriously. I agree. And that's a thing that, you know, so it, it's hard because, like, um, you, I, I, to me, my point of view, the U.S. and the CIA and, you know, whatever the British, you know, Secret Service and, you know, all these Western Secret Services, they want to break, they break, apart, break apart China. And, you know, like, 
I mean, it would be, you know, nice in this magical world that, you know, if in a magical, you know, way that Tibet can be 100% free. But you, I know 100%, the moment that happens, you know, it's going to become a fuck fest of like U.S. bases in there, you know, like like spy, you know, drone operations and missiles in there. I mean, that's fucking garbage to my point of view, right? So like in my point of view, you know, I talk about, you know, decolonization and, and you know, um, um, you know, and, you know, get rid of capitalism. By my point of view, you know, there can be no peace in this world if the U.S. government exists, right? So, you know, if people want to free, you know, this country, that country, we, you know, the U.S. government needs to stop existing, right? Because if it doesn't... We need to free U.S., first of <laughs> yes, all. Yes, you know? exactly. Like, like right now, there's, there's like in the so-called democracy, we get a choice between what, Donald Trump and Biden? You call that democratic choices? It's not. Like, it's bullshit. fucking crazy. Yeah, it's, this election is a joke. This whole election is just like aesthetics, like election aesthetics. Like, hey, man, we have elections. We know, we know reality, we don't. You know, so... And, 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 and now we, you know, instead of like tackling the real issues of like the COVID response, you know, there's a pandemic ravaging U.S., but we instead of doing anything about it we're just trying to shift the blame to china you know oh you know, fucking garbage yeah attention. i mean there's there's so much uh but anyway so we we kind of getting off sidetrack and we already recorded to like a, almost we're at a two hour and ten mark um is it possible can we record like the modern history of tibet at another session because there's so much to talk about yeah you know what i'm, I'm not gonna um yeah let's do that let's Let's put this Tibet part one, and then we'll do Tibet part two later, right? We'll go into because there's a lot to talk about, and I want to uh, like give it proper, detailed treatment. You know, like because especially the modern history of Tibet, post like uh, you know from from 1930s to 1950s up to 1960s. This this it's been so much mythologized in the Western Cold War narrative that that production and then I'll, I'll lay out all the, all the history and you know let the audience decide okay we can do that I think we can we can name this like okay. like an ancient ancient uh, history of Tibet I guess you know and then part one yep. yeah yeah okay well thank you for coming on don't don't hang up thank you for coming on um, so okay. get, get ready for part two people coming up. Thank you.